Chapter Seventeen, Part Six of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Seventeen: The Crusades, Their Decline and End, Part Six. At length, on the twentieth of November, twelve forty-nine, after more than five months' inactivity at Damietta, the Crusaders put themselves once more in motion, with the determination of marching upon Babylon, that outskirt of Cairo, now called Old Cairo, which the greater part of them, in their ignorance mistook for the real Babylon, and where they flattered themselves, they would find immense riches, and avenge the olden sufferings of the Hebrew captives. The Mussulmans had found time to recover from their first fright, and to organize, at all points, a vigorous resistance. On the 8th of February, 1250, a battle took place, twenty leagues from Damietta, at Mansura, the city of victory, on the right bank of the Nile. The king's brother, Robert, Count of Artois, marched with the vanguard, and obtained an early success. But William de Sonnac, Grand Master of the Templars, and William Longsword, Earl of Salisbury, leader of the English Crusaders, but lately arrived at Damietta, insisted upon his waiting for the king before pushing the victory to the uttermost. Robert taxed them ironically with caution. Count Robert, said William Longsword, we shall be presently where thou'lt not dare to come, nigh the tail of my horse. There came a message from the king, ordering his brother to wait for him, but Robert made no account of it. I have already put the Saracens to flight, said he, and I will wait for none to complete their defeat. And he rushed forward into Mansura. All those who had dissuaded him followed after, they found the Mussulmans numerous and perfectly rallied. In a few moments the Count of Artois fell, pierced with wounds, and more than three hundred knights of his train, the same number of English, together with their leader William Longsford, and two hundred and eighty Templars, paid with their lives for the senseless ardor of the French prince. The king hurried up in all haste to the aid of his brother, but he had scarcely arrived, and as yet knew nothing of his brother's fate, when he himself engaged so impetuously in the battle that he was on the point of being taken prisoner by six Saracens, who had already seized the reins of his horse. He was defending himself vigorously with his sword, when several of his knights came up with him and set him free. He asked one of them if he had any news of his brother, and the other answered, "'Certainly I have news of him.' for I am sure that he is now in paradise. Praised be God, answered the king, with a tear or two, and went on with his fighting. The battlefield was left that day to the crusaders, but they were not allowed to occupy it as conquerors. For three days afterwards, on the 11th of February, 1250, the camp of St. Louis was assailed by clouds of Saracens, horse and foot, Mamelukes and Bedouins. All surprise had vanished, 
the Mussulmans measured at a glance the numbers of the Christians, and attacked them in full assurance of success, whatever heroism they might display, and the crusaders themselves indulged in no more self-illusion, and thought only of defending themselves. Lack of provisions and sickness soon rendered defense almost as impossible as attack. Every day saw the Christian camp more and more encumbered with the famine-stricken, the dying, and the dead, and the necessity for retreating became evident. Louis made to the Sultan Malek Maudam an offer to evacuate Egypt and give up Damietta, provided that the kingdom of Jerusalem were restored to the Christians, and the army permitted to accomplish its retreat without obstruction. The Sultan, without accepting or rejecting the proposition, asked, what guarantees would be given him for the surrender of Damietta? Louis offered as hostage one of his brothers, the Count of Anjou, or the Count of Poitiers. We must have the king himself, said the Mussulmans. A unanimous cry of indignation arose amongst the crusaders. We would rather, said Geoffrey de Sargines, that we had been all slain or taken prisoners by the Saracens, than be reproached with having left our king in pawn. All negotiation was broken off, and on the 5th of April, 1250, the crusaders decided upon retreating. This was the most deplorable scene of a deplorable drama, and at the same time it was, for the king, an occasion for displaying, in their most sublime and most attractive traits, all the virtues of the Christian. Whilst sickness and famine were devastating the camp, Louis made himself visitor, physician, and comforter, and his presence and his words exercised upon the worst cases a searching influence. He had one day sent his chaplain, William de Chartres, to visit one of his household servants, a modest man of some means, named Gaugeon, who was at the point of death. When the chaplain was retiring, I am waiting for my lord, our saintly king, to come, said the dying man. I will not depart this life until I have seen him and spoken to him, and then I will die. The king came and addressed to him the most affectionate words of consolation, and when he had left him, and before he had re-entered his tent, he was told that Gauchelem had expired. When the 5th of April, the day fixed for the retreat, had come, Louis himself was ill and much enfeebled. He was urged to go aboard one of the vessels which were to descend the Nile, carrying the wounded and the most suffering. But he refused absolutely, saying, I don't separate from my people in the hour of danger. He remained on land, and when he had to move forward he fainted twice. When he came to himself, he was amongst the last to leave the camp, got himself helped on the back of a little Arab horse, covered with silken housings, and marched at a slow pace with the rear-guard, having beside him Geoffrey de Sargines, who watched over him, and protected me against the Saracens, said Louis himself to Joinville, as a good servant protects his lord, tankered against the flies. Neither the king's courage nor his servant's devotion was enough to ensure success even to the retreat. At four leagues' distance from the camp it had just left, the rear guard of the crusaders, harassed by clouds of Saracens, 
was obliged to halt. Louis could no longer keep on his horse. He was put up at a house, says Joinville, and laid, almost dead, upon the lap of a tradeswoman from Paris. And it was believed that he would not last till evening. With his consent, one of his lieges entered into parley with one of the Mussulman chiefs. A truce was about to be concluded, and the Mussulman was taking off his ring from his finger as a pledge that he would observe it. But during this, says Joinville, there took place a great mishap. A traitor of the sergeant, whose name was Marcel, began calling to our people, Sirs, knights, surrender, for such is the king's command, cause not the king's death. All thought that it was the king's command, and they gave up their swords to the Saracens. Being forthwith declared prisoners, the king and all the rear guard were removed to Mansurah, the king by boat, and his two brothers, the counts of Anjou and Poitiers, and all the other crusaders, drawn up in a body and shackled, followed on foot on the river bank. The advance guard, and all the rest of the army, soon met the same fate. Ten thousand prisoners, this was all that remained of the crusade, that had started eighteen months before from Oegis Mortes. Nevertheless, the lofty bearing and the piety of the king still inspired the Mussulmans with great respect. A negotiation was opened between him and the sultan Malek Moadam, who, having previously freed him from his chains, had him treated with a certain magnificence. As the price of a truce and of his liberty, Louis received a demand for the immediate surrender of Damietta, a heavy ransom, and the restitution of several places which the Christians still held in Palestine. I cannot dispose of those places, said Louis, for they do not belong to me. The princes and the Christian orders, in whose hands they are, can alone keep or surrender them. The sultan in anger threatened to have the king put to the torture, or sent to the grand caliph of Baghdad, who would detain him in prison for the rest of his days. "'I am your prisoner,' said Louis. "'You can do with me what you will.' "'You call yourself a prisoner,' said the Mussulman negotiators. "'And so we believe you are. "'But you treat us as if you had us in prison.' The sultan perceived that he had to do with an indomitable spirit, and he did not insist any longer upon more than the surrender of Damietta, and on a ransom of five hundred thousand livres, that is, about ten million one hundred and thirty-two thousand francs, or four hundred and five thousand two hundred and eighty pounds, of modern money, according to Monsieur de Wiley, supposing, as is probable, that livres of tours are meant. I will pay willingly five hundred thousand livres for the deliverance of my people, said Louis, and I will give up Damietta, for the deliverance of my own person, for I am not a man who ought to be bought and sold for money. By my face, said the sultan, the franc is liberal not to have haggled about so large a sum. Go tell him that I will give him one hundred thousand livres to help towards paying the ransom. The negotiation was concluded on this basis, and victors and vanquished quitted Mansura, and arrived, partly by land and partly by the Nile, within a few leagues of Damietta, 
the surrender of which was fixed for the 7th of May. But five days previously a tragic event took place. Several emirs of the Mamelukes suddenly entered Louis's tent. They had just slain the Sultan Malek Maudam, against whom they had for some time been conspiring. "'Fear not, sir,' said they to the king. "'This was to be. Do what concerns you, in the respect of the stipulated conditions, and you shall be free.' Of those emirs one, who had slain the sultan with his own hand, asked the king, brusquely, "'What wilt thou give me? I have slain thine enemy, who would have put thee to death, had he lived.' And he asked to be made knight. Louis answered not a word. Some of the crusaders present urged him to satisfy the desire of the emir, who had in his power the decision of their fate. I will never confer knighthood on an infidel, said Louis. Let the emir turn Christian. I will take him away to France, enrich him, and make him knight. It is said that, in their admiration for this piety and this indomitable firmness, the emirs had at one time a notion of taking Louis himself for sultan in the place of him whom they just had slain. And this report was probably not altogether devoid of foundation. For some time afterwards, in the intimacy of the conversations between them, Louis one day said to Joinville, "'Think you that I would have taken the kingdom of Babylon if they had offered it to me?' Whereupon I told him, adds Joinville, that he would have done a mad act, seeing that they had slain their lord, and he said to me that of a truth he would not have refused. However that may be, the conditions agreed upon with the late sultan, Malek Moadam, were carried out. On the 7th of May, 1250, Geoffrey de Sargines gave up to the emirs the keys of Damietta, and the Mussulmans entered it tumultuously. The king was waiting aboard his ship for the payment which his people were to make for the release of his brother, the Count of Poitiers, and when he saw approaching a bark on which he recognized his brother, "'Light up, light up!' he cried instantly to his sailors, which was the signal agreed upon for setting out. And leaving forthwith the coast of Egypt, the fleet which bore the remains of the Christian army, made sail for the shores of Palestine. The king, having arrived at St. Jean d'Acre on the 14th of May, 1250, accepted without shrinking the trial imposed upon him by his unfortunate situation. He saw his forces considerably reduced, and the majority of the crusaders left to him. Even his brothers themselves did not hide their ardent desire to return to France. He had that virtue, so rare amongst kings, of taking into consideration the wishes of his comrades, and of desiring their free assent to the burden he asked them to bear with him. He assembled the chief of them, and put the question plainly before them. The queen, my mother, he said, biddeth me and prayeth me to go me hence to France, for that my kingdom has neither peace nor truce with the king of England. The folk here tell me that, if I get me hence, this land is lost, for none of those that be there will dare to abide in it. I pray you, therefore, to give it thought, for it is a grave matter, 
and I grant you nine days for to answer me, whatever shall seem to you good. Eight days after they returned, and Guy de Mauvision, speaking in their name, said to the king, Sir, your brothers and the rich men who be here have had regard unto your condition, and they see that you cannot remain in this country to your own and your kingdom's honor. For of all the knights who came in your train, and of whom you led into Cyprus twenty-eight hundred, there remain not one hundred in this city. Wherefore they do counsel you, sir, to get you hence to France, and to provide troops and money wherewith you may return speedily to this country, to take vengeance on these enemies of God who have kept you in prison. Louis, without any discussion, interrogated all present, one after another, and all, even the Pope's legate, agreed with Guy de Mauvision. I was seated just fourteenth, facing the legate, said Joinville, and when he asked me how it seemed to me, I answered him, that if the king could hold out so far as to keep the field for a year, he would do himself great honor if he remained. Only two knights, William de Boimont and Sir de Chatenay, had the courage to support the opinion of Joinville, which was bolder for the time being, but not less indecisive in respect for the immediate future than the contrary opinion. "'I have heard you out, sirs,' said the king, "'and I will answer you, within eight clays from this time, "'touching that which it shall please me to do.' "'Next Sunday,' says Joinville, "'we came again, all of us, before the king.' "'Sirs,' said he, "'I thank very much all those "'who have counselled me to get me gone to France, "'and likewise those who have counselled me to bide. "'But I have besought me that, "'if I bide, I see no danger "'lest my kingdom of France be lost. "'For the queen, my mother, "'has a many folk to defend it. "'I have noted likewise "'that the barons of this land do say that, "'if I go hence, "'the kingdom of Jerusalem is lost.' At no price will I suffer to be lost the kingdom of Jerusalem, which I came to guard and conquer. My resolve, then, is that I bide for the present. So I say unto you, ye rich men who are here, and to all other knights who shall have a mind to bide with me, come and speak boldly unto me, and I will give ye so much that it shall not be my fault if ye have no mind to bide. Thus none, save Louis himself, dared go to the root of the question. The most discreet advised him to depart, only for the purpose of coming back, and recommencing what had been so unsuccessful, and the boldest only urged him to remain a year longer. None took the risk of saying, even after so many mighty but vain experiments, that the enterprise was chimerical and must be given up. Louis alone was, in word and deed, perfectly true to his own absorbing idea of recovering the holy sepulchre from the Mussulmans, and re-establishing the kingdom of Jerusalem. His was one of those pure and majestic souls, which are almost alien to the world in which they live, and in which disinterested passion is so strong that it puts judgment to silence, extinguishes all fear, and keeps up hope, to infinity. The king's two brothers embarked with a numerous retinue. 
How many crusaders, knights, or men-at-arms remained with Louis, there is nothing to show. But they were assuredly far from sufficient for the attainment of the twofold end he had in view, and even for ensuring less grand results, such as the deliverance of the crusaders, still remaining prisoners in the hands of the Mussulmans, and anything like an effectual protection for the Christians settled in Palestine and Syria. Twice, Louis believed, he was on the point of accomplishing his desire. Towards the end of 1250, and again in 1252, the Sultan of Aleppo and Damascus, and the emirs of Egypt, being engaged in a violent struggle, made offers to him by turns, of restoring the kingdom of Jerusalem, if he would form an active alliance with one or the other party against its enemies. Louis sought means of accepting either of these offers without neglecting his previous engagements, and without compromising the fate of the Christians, still prisoners in Egypt, or living in the territories of Aleppo and Damascus. But during the negotiations entered upon with a view to this end, the Mussulmans of Syria and Egypt suspended their differences, and made common cause against the remnants of the Christian crusaders. And all hope of re-entering Jerusalem by these means vanished away. Another time, the Sultan of Damascus, touched by Louis' pious perseverance, had word sent to him that he, if he wished, could go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and should find himself in perfect safety. The king, says Joinville, held a great council, and none urged him to go. It was shown unto him that if he, who was the greatest king in Christendom, performed his pilgrimage without delivering the holy city from the enemies of God, all the other kings and other pilgrims who came after him would hold themselves content with doing just as much, and would trouble themselves no more about the deliverance of Jerusalem. He was reminded of the example set by Richard Coeur de Lyon, who sixty years before had refused to cast even a look upon Jerusalem when he was unable to deliver her from her enemies. Louis, just as Richard had, refused the incomplete satisfaction which had been offered him, and for nearly four years spent by him on the coasts of Palestine and Syria since his departure from Damietta, from 1250 to 1254, he expended in small works of piety, sympathy, protection, and care for the future of the Christian populations in Asia, his time, his strength, his pecuniary resources, and the ardor of a soul which could not remain icily abandoned to sorrowing over great desires unsatisfied. End of chapter 17, part 6